Book genres are so 20th century. No, 19th century. They made sense when each book needed to be placed on a physical shelf so people could find similar titles. But what if you want to find a vampire romance, a post-apocalyptic comedy, a Western mystery where the main character is an android, a World War II adventure with magic, or a story based around a character of any race or religion or gender, set in any time or any place you choose? Scribble now brings searching for books into the 21st century, even if you're looking for one set in the 17th. Find the books you'll love by selecting the story elements that matter to you at Scribble.com. You'll never look for books the same way again. Search by story elements only at Scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L dot com. Welcome to the serialized short story audiobook, Blood is Red, written and performed by author Scott Sigler. Get the stories in Blood is Red for all ebook readers from scottsigler.com slash bloodisred or from that same page as a full-length audiobook. You can also buy the Blood is Red ebook directly from the Kindle store, the Nook store, Apple's iBooks, and from Google Books. This book contains harsh language, adult situations, and lots and lots of violence. So if you're easily offended, fire up some Justin Bieber instead and enjoy. Red Man by Scott Sigler The woman at the corner booth is staring at me. She's older, about 45, or perhaps a hard life made her look that way. Many people in this place lead hard lives. The restaurant is in Hunter's Point, after all. Her hair is brown and stringy, and she's still bundled in a ratty yellow overcoat, even though it's quite warm inside the diner. The place is full of the clinks and scrapes and slurps and conversational drone of the working class, a group I used to belong to, but none of it seems to involve her. It's as if she's tuned out everything but me. I'm a focus for hatred born from protective, aggressive fear for her child. Her little red-haired kid is oblivious to the stare. He's got dirt smears on his face. He's making yummy noises and devouring a bowl of cocoa puffs. He must get the red hair from his dad. I wonder if the bitch even knows who the boy's father is. Most people stare only a little, or out of the corner of their eye. When I look up, they look away. Not this woman. She's staring a hole right through my head. I've already looked at her twice, once with a smile and once with the best indignant look I could muster. But the latter only lasted a few seconds before I had to look away. Her hateful gaze never flinched. At least she stayed to finish her meal. The only other lady in the diner with the child up and left the second I sat down at the counter. She left a twenty to pay for the coffee and bagel and just vamoosed. That only leaves about two dollars for the waitress. Isn't much of a tip, but then again, I don't really think the woman stopped to consider the waitress's feelings. There are some other patrons in the diner, and I think some of them know who I am. Those who do, they know my face from all those news broadcasts from five years ago. Some of them know I was wrongly convicted, know that I'm not a child molester. But that collective memory seems to be fading from the public's consciousness. More and more I just get the stares, or I get people leaving a half-eaten bagel and dragging their five-year-old out of the diner by a cream-cheese-smeared sleeve. I flip through the menu, 
watching pictures of various dishes scroll past on the countertop. An ad for Rolaids flashes on the bottom edge of the counter, while sports scores and stock quotes scroll along the top. My Giants drop their fifth and sixth straight, losing both games of a doubleheader with Oakland. Some things never change. Gentel is up two and three-eighths. I wonder what the staring woman would say if she knew I just made another hundred thou from that little price jump. She'd never believe me, even if I told her, and I doubt she wants to make small talk. No one wants to talk to a red man. I can vaguely see my reflection in the countertop scratched glass. My face provides a counterpoint to the food-slash-news-slash-sports images that scroll by underneath. The country fried steak looks good, even though the screen is slightly out of focus and missing a few pixels. I keep scrolling, focusing more on my reflection than on the dishes. I see the stripes on my skin. The red color shows I'm a sex offender. The raccoon rings around my eyes shows I'm a rapist, and the thick, ragged zebra stripe running from cheek to cheek and across my nose shows I'm a child molester. I'm trying to look at the chili dog combo plate, but all I can focus on is my reflection. In that way, I guess I'm just like the staring woman. I can't look away either. I always find it amazing that in the brief eight years since the government adopted Abigail Dewerson's marker virus for identifying convicted felons, everyone has the color and pattern codes memorized to the point where only small children need to ask what the strange marks mean. That knowledge is as ingrained in the collective American psyche as the colors of the flag or the stance of the Statue of Liberty. And yet no one remembers that my markings are a mistake. That bitch is still staring. It's a public place. I have as much right to eat here as anyone else, yet I can't take it anymore. I stand and leave, not able to look at the woman, but I feel her stare drill into me all the way to the door. I step out into the cold January rain. As the diner door slowly swings itself shut, I hear a smattering of applause and a few low-key hoots of victory from inside. I close my eyes tight and ignore it until the door shuts Then all I hear are the honks of angry taxi drivers, the grinding acceleration of air cars, and the constant hiss of air brakes. If I close my eyes tight enough and listen, I can almost pretend things are normal, almost pretend that people across the street aren't already staring at me and moving away. Things are always better inside Elvis. Elvis is my pride and joy. A vintage 2119 Cadillac Roadster, the last of the road-only luxury cars. I've had it retrofitted, of course, and now it does 65 miles an hour at 200 feet just like anything else in the luxury class. The windows are tinted solid black. I can see out of them just fine, but all anyone can see is the dark, smoky reflection of their cars and their own normal faces. It's nice cruising at 200 feet. Nice to be above the congestion of the wagons, taxis, and mid-sized cars 50 feet below and, God forbid I should ever have to drive there again, the snarl of small and economy class cars duking it out at 100 feet above the street. What a nightmare that is. Takes almost 40 minutes to get from Sacramento to San Francisco. Things are much faster when you can afford a luxury license. The same trip usually takes me all of 20 minutes as long as I avoid the five o'clock rush that brings out all the tech workers. I hear a honk from my right, a brand new 42 Lincoln town car, 
The driver is honking and waving, giving me the thumbs-up sign. I get that a lot. People love Elvis. It's rare enough to see an actual roadster in one piece, let alone one that's retrofitted for altitude cruising. People who see my car know the driver is not only rich, but darn cool as well. Elvis has style. I honk my horn and wave back. I know the Lincoln driver can't see me, but it feels nice to relate to someone. Feels nice to see a smile directed my way. I spend a lot of time driving. It cost a fortune for Elvis's retrofit. Money I've got in spades. My lawyer made sure of that when he overturned my conviction. The lawsuit made headlines all over the world. They'd used the marker virus on hundreds of dangerous criminals. That was nothing new. What was new was they'd permanently changed my skin pigmentation to forever mark me as a violent sex offender, and it turned out I didn't do it. The jury took one look at the evidence, then one look at my face, and the case was closed. I pocketed around $400 million in various damages. Like I said, money I've got. Don't get me wrong. It's not that I don't understand the felon marking program because I do. People have a right to know when their neighbors or even co-workers are convicted felons, especially sex offenders. Stats show the recidivist rate at 72% for serious sex offenders. So damn right, people should know who's done what. People have a right to be safe, a right to protect their families, protect themselves. It's a great system. Strap the guy to a table, apply the proper marking template, and cover the exposed area with paste. The paste is just an agar medium that carries the retrovirus. It's easy, doesn't even sting. Only takes two hours. You don't see the full effects for about a week, but from there you're marked for life. The virus seeks out chemical receptors in the pigment cells of the epidermis and inserts a single strand of RNA. Inside the cells, the reverse transcriptase enzyme converts the RNA into DNA, which becomes part of the cell's genome. Every time the cell splits, the new DNA is in both daughter cells. That piece of new DNA codes for, you guessed it, epidermal pigmentation. Colors tell the public what the convict did, and therefore is likely to do again. Red for sex offender, green for theft or fraud, bright orange for violent crimes. Stripes and patterns within each color show the nature of the crime. The public has a right to know, as they say. Apparently, they don't have a right to know that I'm innocent. Once your skin cells pick up the new DNA, you're marked. Works the same on any skin, black, white, yellow, or brown. If you try to cut it off, you get scar tissue, the same color as the damaged skin. A well-done skin graft can eliminate the color, but facial skin grafts are very complicated, and even the best ones leave horrible patchwork scars. And if your doctor fucks up even a little, you wind up looking like Frankenstein. The plastic surgeons don't get a lot of practice either, as it's illegal to alter skin affected by the marker virus. Few surgeons are willing to risk their license in probable jail terms, not to mention they'd wind up with green markings of their own to build up the experience. Dorison used amphibian genes for the coloration. The green comes from the common tree frog, the orange from the long-tailed salamander, and the red from the poison arrow frog. Amphibian DNA is easy to work with and very robust as an inserted medium. At least that's what I read. I read a lot about the procedure, everything there is to read, really. If your face screamed child molester, 
I bet you'd be one well-read motherfucker, too. I've been thinking more and more about a skin graft procedure, but I'd like to wind up with my old face and my old skin again. Not a set of scars that makes me look like Elvis's superconductor drive conked out, and I fell 200 feet to tumble face-first through the windshield. I'm holding out for someone to invent a cure for the altered pigmentation. Things don't look good on that front, either. So far, I'm the only one with a legal right to eliminate the markings. One man doesn't exactly make a market worthy of an expensive R&D program. I spent a considerable amount of my fortune trying to remove these stripes. You'd think they could just do a similar process, create a virus that would snip out the part coating for red and insert a normal shade. Trouble is, Duerson somehow strengthened the inserted piece of genetic coating. So far, no one can dislodge the modified piece of DNA. I want these things gone, but I'm not willing to experiment with my face. I've seen shows on the rich ex-cons who've tried unproven methods. They wind up looking like leprosy victims from centuries past. I'd rather be a red man than have a face full of open, oozing, rotting sores. I guess Duerson didn't want anybody escaping their mark of shame, their ubiquitous warning to the public. The only one who could probably figure out a cure is the good doctor herself, and she's not talking. She's dead. She killed herself shortly after the marker virus became part of the legal system's standard procedures. You should have seen the ACLU go apeshit when the Supreme Court ruled the process constitutional. Dr. Duerson, you see, lost her only child, a seven-year-old girl, to a paroled, repeat sex offender. Lived right down the street, if you can imagine that. No one knew his record. It only came out after he raped, sodomized, and murdered seven-year-old Cassie. Dr. Duerson got her revenge in a way, made certain no family would ever have to fall prey to the same stupid mistake. There's no mistaking an ex-con now, that's for goddamn sure. After Duerson perfected the marker virus and saw it implemented, I guess she figured she didn't have much to live for. Sometimes, I truly understand the logic that drove her to that final, creative use of her scalpel. Lately, I understand that logic more and more. More and more. I'm hungry. I really want a nice diner burger, some greasy fries, and a cup of coffee. I want to sit and watch the Warriors highlights on the countertop. I want to hear people wonder if it'll be another century before the Niners win an NFL championship. I want to suffuse myself in the muted conversations and the rhythmic clinks of cheap silverware on cheaper dishes. I want to be normal. But as much as I want that, I don't think I'm up for another stare down. Looks like I'll just head home. Domino's delivers yet again. Author's Note for Red Man I'd love to tell you that Red Man is a sociopolitical commentary on our culture's relative inability to forgive criminals, juxtaposed against the need to protect our children against people who are biologically hardwired to be pedophiles. But telling you that would make me sound all pretentious and stuff. Instead, how about I pop a brew and say something like, Man, wouldn't it suck balls to be convicted of a crime you didn't commit and never be able to escape the stigma? Wait, stigma is also a fancy word. Well, screw it. In 1997, I started a campaign to write and finish a short story every week, 
just to get used to the format and learn how to discipline myself for regular weekly output. It lasted 15 or 16 weeks, I don't remember. Redman was the first tale created in this initiative and remains one of my favorites. At the time I wrote the story, sex offender registries were a hot topic. Don't we have a right to know if there's a predator in our midst? Living near a school, perhaps? Well, yeah. But at the same time, if someone has been convicted by a jury of their peers and then served the state's assigned sentence, doesn't that someone have the right to go on with his or her life? A chance to once again become a contributing member of our society? Well, also, yeah. Those two concepts don't go together like chocolate and peanut butter. You can't have both. The sex offender registry was an effort to make sure no man or woman could put his or her past behind them, to assign a permanent brand letting everyone know of their heinous actions. I felt then, and still feel, that this is one of those situations where both sides are in the right. There is no easy answer. Developing a marking system was a simple extension of the registry, a way to make the complex situation even more visceral. It's also one of the few Sigler stories where someone doesn't get shot, blown up, turned into something nasty, or have their fucking face eaten, so it's got that going for it. Which is nice. Redman was rejected eight times, by the way. From 1997 and 2002, I submitted it to The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Tailbones, Tales from the Internet, Aboriginal Science Fiction, Altair Publishing, Terra Incognita, Deep Outside SFFH, Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, and finally, Moda. I podcast Red Man in 2008. It won a Parsec Award for the best short story. You have been listening to the Blood is Red serialized short story audiobook, written and performed by author Scott Sigler. This audiobook was produced by A. Kovacs and engineered by Ariok Morningstar. Theme music is the song Greed by Separation of Sanity. For more information on the author or to hear his free weekly fiction podcast, go to scottsigler.com. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.